0: How are we doing today? All right, all right. Good to see you today. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carney E. Free. Welcome to everyone who's watching online at CarneyEFree.com as well. So good to be with you today as we wrap up our series, Major Messages, Minor Prophets. I hope it's been a, a profitable, beneficial sermon series for you. It's been really good for me to go a little bit deeper into these prophets that are part of the... Kind of unmarked pages of our Bibles, the pages that stick together because we don't know them as well, don't use them quite as frequently as many of the other passages of Scripture. They've been helpful for, for me. If you were to summarize though, these past 12 weeks and themes that you've seen in the minor prophets, what would you select? What would be some themes that come to your mind? Thank you, brother idolatry and repentance. Good. Any others? Justice. Justice. That was a big one. Yeah. Any others? You can talk in church. It's allowed. Here's this quick summary statement that you might hold on to for these 12 weeks and the 12 minor prophets that I think summarizes Um, A big piece of what they've been communicating, the core ideas that they've been communicating across these minor prophets are these, that God is disheartened by idolatry, injustice, and apathy. And he does call his people As one person said, over and over again, back to repentance related to those three. He's disheartened by idolatry, injustice, and apathy, but conversely, God is heartened. He's thrilled. He's blessed when we respond to him with these three words, with worship, with justice, with commitment. And these same themes were hit on again and again in this series that God provided so greatly for his people, Israel, And sometimes they worship, but oftentimes they fell into idolatry, where they made these little idols, these statues out of stone, and they chose to worship them, or they chose to worship their money, as people are so wont to do today. They chose to worship other things less than the one who alone is God. Likewise, God called his people to, to mercy and to justice, but frequently they didn't live out his heart for the orphan, for the stranger, for the immigrant, for um, the widow that was amongst them, for the poor. They didn't look out, for justice frequently. And finally, he called his people to commitment, but oftentimes instead of commitment, what we saw throughout the Minor Prophets was people are kind of given to an attitude that says like whatever, Right? That's true back then and it's true for us today. And this morning in our final message from the prophet Malachi, Malachi is going to hit on that final theme once again, the theme of apathy versus the theme of commitment. Here's the big idea from Malachi's message that I hope you can take home with you today. It goes like this, apathy assaults our priorities. Say that with me. Apathy assaults our priorities. It does. It assaults our primary relationships. We tend to think of apathy as something that affects us in small ways, like it's a laziness that results in a little bit too much time on the lazy boy chair, or cutting corners on one's chores, or spending a little bit too much time in front of the television, or eating too many Doritos. That's laziness. That's apathy. It's kind of this eh, whatever attitude, but it really doesn't hurt people that much. But the Bible says it says something different that apathy is way deeper than that. Malachi is going to say that apathy assaults our priorities, it assaults our our primary relationships. The word Malachi means my messenger. And I invite you to turn to Malachi right now. It's really easy to get to. All you need to do is go to the New Testament, Matthew, and once you get to Matthew in the New Testament, you just turn back a couple pages. And these are the final words of the Old Testament, the final prophetic language given to the people before Jesus entered time and space. Here's the setting. Haggai and Zechariah, who we've talked about the past couple Sundays, Sundays, have already rebuilt the temple. That was 100 years ago. They did that huge effort to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed those centuries before. Zechariah, excuse me, after Zechariah came Nehemiah, and Nehemiah entered in, and he repaired the walls around the city. And back in that day, cities had walls to protect them from foreign armies. That's already been done for 70 years. And for some hundred years now, the people of Israel have been welcomed back into their homeland by the people of Persia who are ruling over them. This should be a season of relative peace and prosperity for the people of Israel because Babylon is no more. Okay, all the terrible things that Babylon did to Israel, they're gone. Assyria, which assaulted Israel and pillaged the northern kingdom, they're gone. They have more liberty right now under the Persians and freedom to return home and rebuild their temple and rebuild the walls, more liberty than they have had in centuries. Things should be going really well for this nation. But instead, they kind of drift, drift into a comfort coma of sorts. They're in the midst of this prosperity, and they get really comfort, comfortable, and they just kind of are saying, like, Whatever whatever god to all of his commandments and specifically to the top priorities though that he would give to them i want to tell you here at the front of this message that malachi delivers a pretty tough message the book of malachi is not easy and so we're going to open it up and we're going to study it and we're going to say speak god for i your servant am listening understanding that these are difficult words for us to apply in our context today most of malachi is statements like this Thus saith the Lord, says the Lord Almighty. So here's a prophet who's been inspired by God to write down these words, Thus saith the Lord, again and again throughout Malachi. Now, oftentimes, as God speaks to the people in Malachi, they have a number of questions to ask God about the things that he's saying. And they're not the kind of questions that say, well, thank you very much, Father God, for your kind instruction. Can you tell me a little bit more, please? They're the kind of questions that say, eh, I want to figure out a way to get out of this. They're like these sarcastic questions that the people respond with that look for a way out of God's commands. Let me give you a couple examples. Malachi 1, verse 2. says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Okay. Next example. Verse 6. It is your priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? How do you like my really annoying, sarcastic voice? <laughs> I've been working on that all week. <laughs> Chapter 3 look a couple other examples chapter 3 chapter 3 above verse 7 return to me and i will return to you says the lord almighty pretty obvious statement right return to me and i'll rep- uh, and i'll return to you but you ask how are we to return <laughs> 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 all right last one will a mere mortal rob god yet you rob me but you ask how are we robbing you It's like this over and over again. There's like eight or nine of these statements in Malachi where the people are basically blame-shifting or looking for excuses, looking for a way not to follow what God is inviting them to do. More could be shared, but that's probably enough of that annoying voice forever. (laughs) They just kind of want to do their own thing. They just want to kind of do their own thing. And so the priority of worship is assaulted by this apathetic attitude toward God whatever God I'm on the throne I want to do my own thing this is our first relationship and this is the one that is assaulted by apathy in the book of Malachi our relationship with God begins with worship does it not like the very first commandment though, that's given to us as Christ followers goes like this. You are to love the Lord your God with all. Does it say some or does it say all? You are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. You to give yourself fully to God because he has given all of himself in Jesus Christ for you. He has given himself completely to us, and so our natural response would be, would be to say, God, you are Lord, you are sovereign, you are good, and I give myself to you in response. That is worship. Worship arises from this single fact that He is creator. We are, we're the created, we're creation. Did you go outside early this morning? Wow. Stunning. To look up at the sky and see those stars and see that full moon, beautiful morning, and all you can say is, you did that, I did not. It triggers the sense of awe, which it should for us. Very close to the heart of God is an appropriate worship because he is creator and we are not, we are creation. And likewise, number two, he is the redeemer and we are the, we're the redeemed. So we can't redeem ourselves when we do something wrong, right? Like if you go before a court of law and say, I can redeem myself by these good things that I do, the judge will throw you out of court. But you go before the judge of heaven, and Jesus says, I give myself for you. God says, I give my son for you. I redeem you by my son. These are reasons that we worship. He is creator, he is redeemer. We are the created, we are redeemed. It just flows logically that we would worship our creator, understanding that we are not that. In the Old Testament, there's this sacrifice system, going back to Malachi here, there's a sacrifice system that provided temporary atonement and forgiveness for the ways that the people of Israel had trespassed the standards of their God. And they would bring these sacrifices of atonement to God at the temple for two different reasons. One, to say, I've missed the mark and I need to be forgiven by you, O God. And number two, to say, thank you, God, for all that you have given me. I give it all back to you. And so, I'm going to give you a passage here. We're going to look at a passage on the Day of Atonement. It's called Yom Kippur in the Hebrew calendar. And on Yom Kippur, what the people would do is they would bring a spotless lamb. So, maybe a large family of eight would bring one spotless lamb to the temple, the very first and the best of all that they have produced, and give it as worship to God. To say, God, we have missed the mark and we need your forgiveness. And that would be sacrificed. For the forgiveness of sins, the temporary forgiveness of sins, and also then eaten by the people in a great feast as they come together and they remember the ways that God has provided for them. Now, if a family couldn't afford that, such as a very well known family by the name of Mary and Joseph a few hundred years later, they would just bring two turtle doves or two little pigeons if they couldn't afford a lamb. And they were most welcome at the temple for the worship, and God received that offering as well. But listen here to what the people of Israel are doing instead, verse 6 of chapter 1. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty, the creator of all. It is you, priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? Again, it goes on and on. (laughs) By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord God Almighty? So again, if you're new here, I just want to say that this whole sacrifice system that I was just talking about was fulfilled by Jesus. Okay, It's not practiced anymore. Jesus was the last and the final sacrifice who takes away the transgressions of the world. Maybe you've heard this statement that he is the Lamb of God. So all of those lambs were forerunners. They were pointers to the Lamb of God who would fulfill all of the sacrifice system. But the point here for our purposes this morning from Malachi is this. God commanded them to bring their very best to worship, but they chose instead to bring the leftovers. That's what they're doing. Okay, we understand, God, that you have given us everything that we have. You are creator, we are created. You are redeemer, we are redeemed, but we're gonna give you the leftovers. Leftovers. They're bringing their leftovers to God. It raises the question for me, am I bringing my very best to God when I come to worship? Perhaps that's a good question for you to ask. Are you bringing your very best to God when you come to worship? Are you bringing your very best to God when you worship God through your work on Monday morning as well? You come to church on Sunday morning, and it's a good thing to ask, am I just mouthing these words from these songs, or am I singing them because I believe them? When I come to church on the first Sunday of the month and I take communion, do I take a moment to reflect upon the great mercy and kindness of God to forgive me? And then I worship out of that. When I set up my gift, we give through our online portal and we know it comes out on a certain day of the month, do I pause on that day of the month and say, God, this is for you? You have given me 100%, and I give a portion back to you today, acknowledging you as the one who has given me all that I have. I worship you with my tithe. I worship you well with my offering. What an honor it is to give back to the one who has given me all that I have. This is worship. You flip over to chapter 3, and you'll see another way that the people of Malachi of his day are failing to do this. Look at verse 6. It happened with the sacrifices they're bringing, and it also happens with the offerings, the financial gifts that they're bringing to the temple. Chapter 3, verse 6 I, the Lord, do not change. Oh, thank you, God, that you do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I promise I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, How are we to return? Insert annoying voice. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, How are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord God Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there's not even room enough to store it all. Wow. And what he's saying here is you trust God with all that he's given you, and he will take care of you. You trust God with what he's given you, and he promises even to multiply that. Now, there's not a promise. I don't have any guarantee that he's gonna multiply that financially. He might, but if you trust him with your wealth, he will multiply blessings in your life in one way or another. It might be the multiplied blessing of increased Generosity and the joy of generosity, and a diminishment of the natural human tendency toward greed, and increased compassion for people. I mean, God could multiply any number of different ways, but what a promise this is for us. And it's a good confrontation to us because there is a certain temptation to give God the leftovers. It reminds me of a missionary story. My wife had a friend in college who was from a missionary family and she has a lot of missionaries in her family as well. And so they were sharing stories about back and forth and the, this young man grew up as a missionary kid in Japan and they were talking the, this particular day about some of the different kinds of gifts or uh, packages though, that they would get from supporters who cared for them and and sent little gifts to them. And there was uh, one time, kind of the kicker, fall for this man and his family. And a story that they would look back and laugh on a lot was a family was so concerned about the, these missionaries and thought they were so poor that um, that they sent this family over in Japan a collection of used tea bags. Yeah, insert gasp right. Like the idea. Well, they're so poor, they'll be happy with these tea bags that we used, and they can steep them a second time, and they can use them a second time. Our little offering to them and our little offering to God. Now, that's embarrassing. But, like, why is it that even today food banks have to advertise do not give us food that's expired? Right? Food banks have to advertise that. No expired food. Why is it that sometimes at the soup kitchen they just serve slop instead of really good stuff? Because there is this temptation in the heart of every man and woman to give to me and mine a ribeye steak and give like the leftover grizzle and fat to God and the poor. And so God inserts the tithe as a correction to that temptation. The tithe is a 10% of one's income that one would set apart as the first portion of one's income and say, God, all that I have is from you and I give back this portion to your purposes in the world. And you read right there in Malachi that it was going to build up the storehouse such that the people would have enough food to care for those that were hungry and it provided for the ministries that were happening at the temple and provided for for the priests. And when you choose to bring an offering here in this place, you got to know that that provides for discipling of students and our various group ministries and our storehouse ministry and our men in action ministry, which works with widows and orphans, the fatherless, single parents, all these kinds of things that God commands us to do and also helps us keep the lights on in this wonderful building. Amen? Like all of those things. And so when we give, we say, it's not a have to. It's a get to. I get to give out of all God has given me back to his great purposes in my church that feeds me and through my church to the broader community. And what I've just found over the years is giving more to what God wants done in the world is a lot more enjoyable than another pair of Nikes. It just is. Like, I mean, the cultural... More eh, is just get more stuff, but more stuff gets really, really boring, and moth and rust destroy, and thieves break in and steal, and so God reminds us to set aside for his purposes in the world, which do not rust or are not destroyed. There might be a time, I, I want you to know, there might be a time in your life that you're not able to set aside a, a tithe, a 10%. Maybe you're going between jobs or you've had a relational problem of some kind, there's been a divorce, whatever it might be, and you're just not able to do that. I think there's grace for that, I really do. I, I want you to hear me. I believe there's grace for that. I think there's a reason Jesus only speaks to tithe implicitly on one occasion. I think it's a really good starting point for great generosity, but I think there's grace if you can't do that right now. What I would encourage you to do is say, God, you have given me everything, and I worship you with all that you have given me, and I choose to start with a small percentage. And I grow from there, starting with the church that feeds me, and then toward whatever other charities or missions, enterprises, that the Lord is leading you to get involved with. But the bottom line is, we do not give God the leftovers. We give him our first fruits. Because worship is essentially this. All of me for all of God's glory. Would you say that with me? All of me for all of God's glory. That's what worship is. It's all of me for all of God's glory. And so we resist the ritual of worship. We resist going through the motions. And instead we say, God, you are creator and redeemer. And so I choose to actively engage in worship with you. You made me. You did a great job, by the way. God did a great job making you all. And we choose to worship him with all that he's made. Okay, i got to move on. Number two, the second area that's assaulted by apathy is our marriages. And Malachi is going to address here in chapter two the issue of divorce. And as he addresses the issue of divorce, I want to speak really, really tenderly here. But I hope to speak really clearly as well. Because I know that there's nothing, there are few things that are more painful for someone to go through than the pain of divorce. And uh, divorce is like a death and in some cases for some people divorce is worse than a death the grief of a divorce can be even worse than death and so I want to be very tender as I speak about this and I want you to know that if you came to me and if you were divorced I would treat you with the same sympathy and compassion as I would treat someone who just lost their mother I'd meet you right where you are and greet you with compassion and There is no unforgivable sin except for perpetual unbelief. Okay, Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. So if you've been divorced, I'm not trying to shame you in any way either. But I do want to speak for a moment as the Bible speaks here about what God's Word tells us related to divorce and how it speaks very strongly. A little bit of history is in order. It was much easier for pastors to speak about divorce prior to 1970, and then in the first several years after 1970, because prior to 1970 in the United States, we did not have something on our books in America called no-fault divorce. It was very difficult to get divorced prior to 1970 in the United States. But then in 1970, Governor Ronald Reagan over in California um, gave approval for the very first time to no-fault divorce. And then a couple years later, Here in Nebraska, Governor James Exxon did the same thing. And over the next several years, all of America followed suit such that no fault divorce is now the law of our land, and it happened within about a decade. It's one of the few times in modern history where Democrats and Republicans joined hands on something. And it was for a very harmful reason. It's clear that the cultural standards over these past 50 years for marriage and divorce have replaced God's standards for marriage and divorce. Look at Malachi chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord God Almighty. So be on your guard. And do not be unfaithful. And so divorce was an epidemic in Malachi's day as well. And as a result of this, the prophet is reminding the people of God's original creation of one man and one woman in which he says you are no longer two, but you are now one flesh. And the word there for one is duvach. Duvach in the Hebrew is one. You come together as one. And the same Hebrew word is used for glue duvach means to make one to glue together so you're no longer two you are now literally are glued together as one when you covenanted covenanted together you said it's not man and woman it's us together so Malachi 2 says this verse 16 the man who hates and divorces his wife says the Lord the God of Israel does violence to the one he should protect now, frankly, I got to say I don't really understand the wording here in the NIV or in the ESV translations of the Bible. The way I heard it when I first start, started studying the Bible was basically this: God hates divorce because divorce does violence to the one He should protect. And so, what I did is I didn't really understand what was going on here in the NIV and the ESV as well. Is just look at the original Hebrew. I went back to my Hebrew Bible though this week, dusted it off a little bit. And I looked at the original, well, what it would say, and in essence, it says this. It's a little bit different in Hebrew grammar, but you'll get the idea from this literal translation from the Hebrew. It says, Jehovah says, Jehovah is God, so God says, sending away, he hates. Okay, that a man and woman comes together, and Jehovah God says, when one sends the other away, He hates. He hates that. Well, why does God hate divorce? you got to stick with me here to the very end. Please stick with me to the very end. Why does he hate divorce? There's two reasons at least. When Jews the day well would get married, a man would symbolically uh, take off his outer robe and he would put it around his new wife. And the, the priest, the Jewish priest would come in and he would say a prayer of blessing over the husband and the wife as the man had the robe around his wife and the prayer of blessing well, would go something like this. You promise to serve her, to build her up, to look out for her interests over your own, and most importantly, you promise to protect her. This covering over her is a promise to protect her. And so you can see there the idea that if you were to remove that covering would be to do violence to the wife that you swear to protect by putting her in a place that she is exposed Second reason is this our faithfulness, our covenant between husband and wife is intended to mirror the faithfulness of God to us. And so, when God says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I make a covenant with you as my beloved son, I make a covenant with you as my beloved daughter, I promise I will never leave you or forsake you. So, also, we are saying, At our wedding day, I make a covenant with you. I promise faithfulness to you through the ups and downs that we will inevitably face. And this relationship is reinforced over and over again in the scriptures. Listen to this Isaiah 62. As a young man marries a young woman, so your builder will marry you. Who's the builder? Okay, it's like we're wedded to God in covenant. And much in the same way, a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so the Lord will rejoice over you. Thus, Jeremiah 3 says, Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I'm faithful to you. Return to me and be faithful to me, God says. Ephesians five thirty one says this, A man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife. He will cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Duvach. They come together, they're glued together. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Well, Paul, I thought you were just talking about a husband and a wife. No, I'm talking about both. I'm talking about both. Much in the same way as Christ is covenanted with his very imperfect bride, the church, and promises faithfulness to her, so a husband and wife come together in spite of their imperfections, they promise faithfulness to one another. We mirror that covenant. We mirror the faithfulness of God with our spouse. And so when a Christian breaks faith with their spouse, it understandably reflects poorly on God's covenant with us. And as anyone who has been through the pain of divorce can testify, it splinters the soul, right? It has an effect of like splintering the soul, I've given this illustration one time before, but it was a few years ago, so I'm sure you've forgotten it. Um, part of being a pastor. <laughs> but, you know, you got these two pieces of wood, and you really can't tell where one ends and the other one begins unless you look really, really carefully. And that's what God has in mind when the husband and wife come together. There's still two people, but they come together as One. And you're not really sure where one ends and the other one begins. They're just one. There's this covering, this robe of protection around them together. Duvok, glued together. And if you break this, you can't see it very well, but what I see is splinters fall from this piece of wood that are on this piece of wood. And splinters fall from this one that are on this. Which is a portrait, again, with that imagery of glue of exactly what people go through when they endure the pain of divorce. It's a splintering of my soul, a breaking apart of the one that I had covenanted together with. Now, I I know there's probably some that are saying to me right now, "I, I get all that, Adrian, but I'm just not happy anymore. And I get that, and I have sympathy for that. But God's desire is not to make you happy through your marriage. That's actually not his goal. That's a nice byproduct. But his goal is your holiness. His goal is to use marriage to help sanctify you, to make you more like Christ, to help you become more and more holy. And if you aim at happiness, you will leave when you're no longer happy. And then you'll find someone else and eventually you won't be happy there either. But if you aim at holiness eventually, over time, happiness will likely follow. You start with holiness, which is God's intention, as opposed to happiness, which is the world's intention. And after you aim at happiness, after you aim, excuse me, at holiness over the course of time, again, eventually you get happiness, and more importantly, you get legacy. Legacy built. Okay, I get that, Adrian, but we're just not compatible anymore. Once we were compatible, but now, all these years later, we are not compatible anymore. To which I just want to say, is anyone compatible fully all the time for 50 years? No, nobody is. Like, we all have these moments where we're at friction with each other. We're grinding with each other. We're incompatible with each other. And it's Hollywood, not the Bible, that says someone else is always simpatico with you. No, they're not. They don't complete you. God alone completes you. Plus, beyond that, why would you take your cues from Hollywood? They're all divorced. Like, don't do that. Take your cues from the Bible, pursue holiness, and then happiness will follow. Yeah, yeah. Friends, God intends to complete you, not another person. You go to God and you get your completion for Him. And then another person eventually, slowly over the time, will learn to compliment you and vice versa. You, you see, I married my opposite. Y'all got to pray for Susie. She married her opposite. <laughs> Did anyone else in this room marry their opposite? Just raise your hand. You can admit. Like your, your spouse already knows. Your spouse already knows. <laughs> okay, I married my opposite. Susie is quieter, I'm not. Susie's reserved I'm pretty driven Susie's really beautiful You get to look at this (laughs) Uh, Like we come from very different backgrounds She's Indian I come from like a typical Caucasian American mix Okay, those ethnic differences are significant in marriage I'll tell you they're a blessing. They've brought us together in beautiful ways, but they're challenged. You have to work through them. I came from a wonderful independent family. My beloved parents are here right now, and I'm so grateful for them. A wonderful mother, a wonderful father, a wonderful brother. I came from a wonderful family, but it was a very independent Western family. Three people and me, four of us. Susie came from a wonderful, interdependent family that included mom and dad and brother and sister and grandparents and aunties and uncles and second aunties and second uncles and cousins and second cousins and other cousins that aren't actually her cousins. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) And it's like they all come together at once. It's like, this is my family. And uh, who are all these people? Just call them uncle and auntie. (laughs) You'll be fine. Okay, Are, are we compatible? Sometimes, just sometimes. But sometimes not. And we learn, we have learned to build each other up over time. And and part of the way you learn to build each other up over time is just this rigorous commitment to forgiveness. This rigorous commitment to, it's okay that we're different. I love the way Colossians 3 puts it. It's one of my favorite marriage verses. It says, bear with one another and forgive each other as the Lord God forgave you. So, like as you look at Jesus and you realize that he's forgiven you of everything, then you have a newfound reservoir of compassion to bear with each other. Bearing with each other is about all the idiosyncrasies that you don't like about your spouse. You see lots of those and you bear with those in each other. Forgiveness is my spouse has hurt me. There was a failure. There was a sin. And we learn to forgive each other. And then Christ grows us more and more into his likeness over time. Now, I, I need to note just very quickly that the Bible does give permission. Just very quick parenthesis. The Bible does give permission to divorce in a couple rare instances. Okay, there's permission, not mandation. You're not mandated to get, to get divorced if this happens. Like sometimes people work through these things. But when there's been sexual immorality or when there's been abandonment where one person wants to keep working on it, the other person just runs in the other direction and says, I'm done, I quit, you're left holding the bag. In those cases, the New Testament gives two provisions, The divorce is permissible. I think another one, in my opinion, would be abuse. Abuse is unthinkable in the people of Israel, so I don't think it's counted there frequently in the New Testament. But I can't see how one could leave and cleave and become one flesh while they're physically abusing their spouse. Okay, so I think these are these rare cases where divorce might be permissible. But friends, divorce breaks God's heart and it breaks ours. And it should be exceedingly rare because healthy communities are made up of healthy families and healthy families are made up of healthy marriages and healthy marriages are made up of people who say, I will forgive and I will love and I commit myself to you. And that becomes a beautiful mirror You have imperfect husband and imperfect wife coming together, loving and committing and forgiving each other. That becomes a beautiful mirror of perfect Christ and his ongoing forgiveness of his imperfect bride, the church. He continues to forgive us. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. And so we mirror that toward one another. I know people talk all the time about how the divorce rate is the same in the church as it is in the world. And that's actually not true a faulty statistic. It's significantly lower amongst committed Christians, though, than it is in the world. But that said, all of us would agree, it's too high. It's too high. And it's reached epidemic proportions across our nation, and we have not been immune to that here in central Nebraska. And I would just want to envision with you, imagine with you, what if 10 years from now, This next generation of young people provide something different than we have provided for them. Like, what if 10 years far from now, this next generation says, I'm going after all that God says about the beauty of divorce, and I'm going to honor my covenant. And what if 10 years far from now, the people of central Nebraska would look at a place like E. Free Church, and New Life Assemblies, and Grace Fellowship, and First Baptist, and Trinity Pres, and the other churches that teach the Bible here, and they would say, wow, they fight for each other. Like, wow, I I see how these men reject passivity and they pursue their wives. I see how these ladies build up their husbands and I see how they forgive one another. What a testament to the beauty that God intends for his church. But to get there, we gotta fight apathy. Apathy you got to prioritize your most important relationships. We have to prioritize our marriages. And we have to prioritize proper worship to God. You know, worship to God is much the same way. It's, it's really easy to kind of get frustrated in our relationship with God. But you still choose to enter in, don't you? You, just still, you still choose to communicate. You still choose to worship. And so also husbands and wives. There's all this frustration. We feel it. But we choose to enter in. We choose to communicate. We choose to pursue each other. Wives, reject passivity and pursue your husbands. Husbands, reject passivity and pursue your wives. And eventually, that choice for holiness will lead you to more happiness too. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I'm so thankful for your faithfulness. I'm so thankful that as we think a little bit about the standards all around us in the broader culture, we can also at the same time look at the scriptures and see I, the Lord, the God of heaven does not change. And your character is always good and your standards are always high. And as we come to the scriptures, we can see once again what you intend for us. And we just confess, Lord, that it's sometimes really, really hard to exit the radar screen of this cultural thinking and enter enter the radar screen of our God. But we want to be on the radar screen of our God and all that you expect of us, all that you command to us relative to our worship. That we would say, all of me for your glory, O God. I give myself to you fully this week. I sing to you because you're good. I sing to you because you're worthy. And we would say, yes, Marriage is hard at times. And maybe your marriage today is even on the rocks a little bit, and you just say today, I've now heard the word of God. I've now heard what the scriptures say, and so I commit myself to pursuing my husband. I commit myself to pursuing my bride. And maybe you've had divorce in your past, and I'm not trying to make you feel guilty in any way. You cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube. I recognize that. You can't do that. But what you can do is say, I now know God's standards. And I'm not going to feel shame about the past. That's not what I'm trying to get at. I'm not going to feel false guilt related to permissible divorce. But I am going to say, this is the way I want it from this day forward. This is how I'm going to teach it to my kids. This is how I'm going to treat my marriage, even when it's really hard. Father, our deep desire in this place is that we would mirror your covenant faithfulness to us. That a watching world around us would say, wow, there's something different about them. And that you would lead us to the holiness of God as we grow through the pain and the triumph and the beauty of marriage. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you're never done working with us. You never quit on us. You never stop working. And for that, we give you glory. In Jesus' mighty name, God's people say. Amen, amen.